CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We've got a great show for you as always today. Jeff and I were lucky to talk to Thomas Walker about his recently published attribution guide for early uh, U.S. large cents. Uh, so any large cent collectors or people interested in learning a little bit about variety attribution should absolutely stay tuned. We're really grateful uh, to Thomas for taking the time to talk with us, and uh, we hope you enjoy the interview. Yeah, you know, now we always say we have a great show for you. Or when are we going to be um, honest and say, you know, maybe this one is an A minus and not an A plus, or, I mean, you know, do we, do we ever, are we ever going to say, you know, I think this feels like a B show or a C show. I'm, I'm kidding. We always try to bring our best to this. Um, that that, <laughs> that would be highly, that would be highly relatable because I'm assuming a lot of, a lot of our podcast listeners probably have A minus to B plus, maybe C minus days, you know, <laughs> we all, we all have those. So maybe we should, uh, maybe we should be a little bit more, um, realistic in our self-promotion but i I do think this is going to be a great show for him though i am feeling vf35 today but i believe that you're (laughs) you're you're feeling ms70 so Eh. that averages out to au50 (laughs) at at least au58 um Okay. okay very good hey um you know the the interesting timing of this was we talked to thomas uh a little while ago a couple weeks ago about 10 days ago maybe and then i thought wait a minute the Early American Coppers Convention is uh, coming up in St. Louis, of all places, uh, this later this week. So why don't we have that interview timed to sort of, uh, you know, coalesce and coincide with the the show, uh, since you know the show's all about early American coppers, and that's what uh, his books are about, even though, as you'll learn if you listen to the interview, you should, uh, that Thomas collects more than early American coppers. To me, it just made sense, and it was, uh, this is the first early American coppers event live and, and in person since 2019, and 2019, Chris and I were very fortunate to attend the Early American Coppers Convention, which was in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, so it's kind of fun, you know, that um, at least for me, I'll, I'll be at the show uh, later this week in a few days. And, um, you know, to have been to the most recent one and now the newest one, and of course, then to be able to talk to Thomas Walker about. Uh, something related. So it just kind of, it just kind of makes, made sense. It came together, comes together nicely, I think, um, sort of, you know, without that 100% intentional planning, it's a good thing, I think. Yeah. I loved attending the EAC convention in 2019. I had never been to an EAC convention, um, but really enjoyed going and hearing some of the, uh, the lectures and we had the good fortune, I think you mentioned this, to interview Jack Young. That's a previous podcast interview. Um, Jack Young is a fascinating guy, too. Uh, so we're very lucky. You know, EAC members and um, copper uh, U.S. copper coin experts generally are apparently very uh, generous with their time. So we appreciated uh, Jack Young, and we definitely appreciate uh, Thomas Walker, who, as you mentioned, um, you know, specializes in and has interests outside of, of early date U.S. large sense, but his attribution guide was the focus of the interview. So what are we looking at in terms of, we're looking back in the numismatic history, as we always do. Um, what uh, So what, what are you looking at, Jeff? So, you know, sticking with the scent theme, not large scent in this case, uh, I found it interesting in looking at this week in numismatic history uh, to go back to May 12th, 1909. Of course, 1909 jumps out automatically. You think of Lincoln scent. Well, uh, that was not a large scent, of course. But, um, again, penny for your thoughts, sticking with the theme, uh, that was the day that patterns without the motto, In God We Trust, were struck at the Philadelphia Mint. And, of course, this is a chance to 
make the callback to our interview with uh, Bill Beerley of the book In God We Trust. And uh, actually, he was at the Central States show and did a book signing uh, a couple weeks ago. So it just, you know, again, it all kind of flows together. Uh, there's all these touch points. It's all connected. Uh, I thought that was interesting, though, because, you know, 1909, we, we think of, um, you know, In God We Trust. We, we know that it came onto the coinage in uh, during the Civil War, right, on the two-cent coin. But uh, here was an effort to uh, omit it or, you know, come up with a design that did not include it. And uh, that's not, of course, what happened. You know, the Lincoln cent includes it. All, all current circulating coinage includes it. Uh, but there was this tiny little effort then to omit it. So that was kind of fun. I mean, there's, you know, it's always interesting to look at uh, this week in history, um, and try to come up with, okay, which of these has the most significance today in real term, and which of these maybe is is merely, okay, it relates to something we're talking about. And this was a tough week. You know, there's uh, just, you know, not a, um, a total, seemed like a, a quiet time uh, in numismatic history a little bit. Um, for whatever reason. Uh, so went with that, I, I thought it's interesting. You know, there's, there's millions of options. There's, uh, you know, you, I, I, I thought this was interesting because May 13th, 1916, Yiddish author Sholem Alakim said, who said money is round, it rolls away. He dies. I, you know, to me that, uh, that's really not <laughs> numismatic history. The, the, um, the punster or jokester dying is sad, but, um, you know, I, I like that saying. That's the kind of thing we're working with. There was, uh, you know, the purchase of an 1804 uh, dollar, which is which is big news, I guess. Uh, Confederate Congress approves the act to suspend operations at all Southern Mints, effective June 1st, 1861. That was kind of fun, but there's so much to learn, and we could, we could do a show just about the various numismatic history bits. But, you know, I do find it challenging sometimes. It's hard to narrow into one, one item and one thing that is like, oh, my gosh, this is something that we still feel the effect of today. So anyway, there's your, uh, there's your numismatic history. Oh, that's, that's great. And, and to your point, sometimes, you know, sometimes there really wasn't anything particularly notable. I mean, you could probably find something notable either in, in world history or numismatic history that occurred on any given day, but, and sometimes a date will just fall into your lap. I mean, I've, um, for a, um, short article I'm working on for a future print edition of coin world, I'm reading rusty goes, uh, part of rusty goes, um, the confident Carson city collector and the date of publication falling on the hundred and 150th or the, the year date, I should say, of publication falling on the 150th anniversary of the commencement of, of the beginning of coining operations at that facility, you know, kind of fell into his lap, but you know, we can all be, I mean, obviously he'd been working on it for a decade plus. So, you know, it was obviously an ongoing process, but anyway, so the dates can't always kind of just come to us so organically. So I, I yeah. totally sympathize, but no, I think those are fascinating uh, numismatic history anecdotes. Some shows it feels like everything falls into place just like you say, organically, some shows it's like, well, that's kind of a reach or a, you know, that's, you know, I, I kind of felt that way with this week in coin world history. The, the stuff that was on the cover to me was, I mean, okay. You know, silver American Eagle sales and um, the, the dollar program that, you know, the American innovations, whatever. I'm coming around to that series a little bit. I almost feel like I should have been, collecting it from earlier on, but, um, you know, they just didn't jump out to me. What I liked, though, was uh, a story about the 2019 W quarter. Remember that? It was only three years ago, and in, in some ways it feels like a lifetime ago, um, when the 2019 W quarters were uh, entering circulation, and, um, you know, that was big news. 
I mean, there was uh, there were efforts from grading services to hey, you know, do doing little contest who can submit the first one and of all the different designs. In fact, in in um, Bill Gibbs' article, this issue, the May nineteenth, uh, I'm sorry, the May thirteenth, twenty nineteen issue, referenced uh, the Desperate Housewives actor who uh, had the first. 2019 W quarter certified by NGC. That was such a moment in recent history to get people looking at their change, thinking about, you know, this, yes, it's a manufactured rarity, if you will, but they were available in circulation. And I kind of, you know, I consume a lot of coin content on the daily to, to just to try to learn because there's so much to learn. And I saw in a, a coin group uh, based in the UK, some comments about some circulating commemorative coins there. The 2019 A to Z program, uh, they have 26 coins, they're 10 pence uh, denomination. The Royal Mint came out with designs in 2018 and 2019. 2019 are much more rare and it's fascinating to see, you know, some of these coins are 20 and $25 equivalent coins. And it was a 10 cent, you know, 12 cent, 15 cent, you know, if, if you're looking at the equivalent exchange rate value during the time. Uh, I mean, now it's, now it's about 12 and a half cents, right? One 10 pence coin is worth about 12 and a half cents. The way I look at the 10 pence coin in Great Britain is it's about the size and weight of a U.S. quarter, and it's worth half as much. To be able to find one of those in circulation, to find a 15 cent, 12 cent coin, whatever, and it's worth $20, $25, that's insane. Well, we had that here in the U.S. with the 2019 W quarters, particularly there's been some subsequent issues, and uh, you know the, it's not as buzzy now as it was three years ago, but that was a big news to me in that issue. Certainly ramifications today, reverberations today. So, uh, and, and it's recent history. We went with 2019 because. So we tend, as we've explained in many other episodes, but it bears repeating here, we pick years for the, uh, year dates for the This Week in Coin World history that we review, the issue that we review, uh, based on, you know, milestones in our guests' personal or professional lives. Um, so for Thomas Walker, he graduated from uh, Georgia Tech in 2019. So we thought that that was as relevant a milestone as any. Um, and so we decided to go with uh, May 13th, 2019. And also your point about the, the W quarters and that kind of being a major story at this time three years ago, which... <laughs> to your point about it feeling like a lifetime ago, it really does. It's kind of surreal to read the stuff, you know, because I, you know, I've been, I was working at Coin World full time by then. And yeah, I, I wrote some of the coverage of the Great American Coin Hunt and some of the other um, adjacent stories. And it's so strange to go back because there are things I don't remember writing. There are things that I, you know, vaguely remember writing, but also it just feels very different. I don't know. The- I think the clinical term is suppressed from memory. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, hey, the, the, although honestly, that's a good chunk of my last three years. The, pand- the pandemic aged me. Um, but anyway, um, I mean, obviously, I don't mean to be glib. It obviously had much more significant impacts on other people. But nonetheless, it was a difficult time, I think it's fair to say, for all of us. Um, but it is sort of strange to see this kind of pre-pandemic numismatic story. It hits different, as the kids say. Um, yeah. But your point about the 2019 W quarter and the significance of that story uh, at the time, dovetails nicely with the first of the two letters from the letters to the editor page that I examined. Mm. So this first one is entitled Far Too Many Quarters, and it reads, quote, Two million is far too many coins for the 2019 W quarter dollars. But you have to think our circulating coinage is beyond flooded with the state quarters, America the Beautiful quarters, and all of the other billions of quarters made before 1999. I highly doubt any non-collector will ever look through their quarters to find these. How many people actually have collected all the quarters after the state quarter program ended anyway? It can't be that many, which is why the Mint wants to spark interest, I'm sure. 
it could potentially take a long time for all 2019 W quarters. It could potentially take a long time before all 2019 W quarters are ever found, if they are found at all. How fast collectors remove their 2019 W quarters from entering circulation will affect their grade value. Even now, some of the super high grade modern quarters have a hefty premium. I wonder what these will be in, say, Min State 69. I also wonder whether some sort of insider trading, that insider trading is in scare quotes, is involved. We already know what cities will get the coins first. Insiders probably know the banks and bank tellers too. And this was submitted um, online uh, by someone named Josh Cook. And I picked this letter not only because it, it dovetails nicely with the major news story um, that you discussed, as I mentioned, but it hit a couple of notes that I think we talk about with these letters a lot and and that I thought was, was worth talking about. His doubt about non-collector interest, I think, is well taken. Anecdotally, I spoke to my friends and family members when they permit me to speak to them about numismatics because they <laughs> all, I notice eyes start to glaze over past a certain point. But... You know, anecdotally, in speaking to friends and family, no one had even heard that the W quarters were going to be released. And even when I mentioned it now, I was, I was, you know, thumbing through some change um, in in my car a few days ago because I was going to do some laundry. And uh, my partner, um, you know, I noticed a a, a fairly nice looking um, twenty nineteen Massachusetts America the Beautiful quarter. Now, Massachusetts America the Beautiful quarter was released. It was the first of the twenty nineteen group, first of the five uh, states or territories whose national parks or other sites of historical or cultural interest were, were commemorated in the program. And I noticed it, it had a really nice look to it. it. It didn't look like it had circulated too heavily. And, and I thought, oh, maybe I flipped over. It was Philadelphia. It was from the Philadelphia Mint. And um, she kind of gave me a quizzical look. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm looking for the W quarter, you know, they issued. And then I found myself launching into an explanation and realizing, okay, yeah, <laughs> I, I just gave a very basic explanation. But I share that to suggest that none of my friends or family had heard of it in the same way that almost everyone had heard of the the original Fisher State quarter program, which began in 1999, and then the America the Beautiful program, which began in 2000, which began in 2010. But to me, you know, Mr. Cook here, who wrote this letter, kind of obliquely raises a very interesting question, which is, who was this program fundamentally for? Was it to spark interest in the public? Because it, it was paired with the Great American Coin Hunt, where uh, a, a number of dealers nationwide all voluntarily agreed to put low dollar value, you know, interesting numismatic material, you know, low to mid grade common date buffalo nickels, wheat cents, maybe um, worn common date Indian head cents, it, you know, Silver certificates. I remember, Jeff, the Shelby County Coin Club, of which you and I were and may or may not still be members. I don't know. I don't know if I ever paid my dues to keep up with them. They did send me a really nice little um, little anniversary pamphlet recently. So Yes, uh, yes. I, I gave them your address and said that you would – because I went back in December and spoke at their, their anniversary event and where they had those. And they didn't have enough for me to get you one at the time, but I said – you having been a member would appreciate it. So I'm glad they, I'm glad they finally they came through for you, but mm. yeah. Um, you know, oh, well, that happened a couple of weeks ago, but it's really quickly when you and I were regularly attending Shelby County coin club meetings. I forget. It might've been Bernagan Nagengast who we actually had on the podcast at one point in time. I forget exactly who put these packets together. I don't want to give credit to uh, someone who didn't do it or, you know, I, I want the Shelby coin club acknowledged for their, for having done this, you know, people put together, you know, some common lightly circulated Eisenhower dollars and silver certificates. I went down to a coffee shop in Troy, Ohio, when I was living in that part of the world and, and spent them the whole idea behind the great American coin hunt and was to try to put, you know, collectible coins into circulation in the hopes that people would be fine in their change, see that it was distinct from what they normally encountered. And then, you know, maybe go to a coin shop. There were also, um, little golden and silver uh, tickets, you know, little tokens that were put into um, that were put into circulation as well that would entitle the bearer to a certain uh, dollar value at coin shops. It was, it was, you know, you can go back and look at some of our old reporting. Um, maybe we can dig up an, a relevant article or two to drop into the show notes to give people a sense as to what the Great American Coin Hunt was. Um, but anyway, I share this this sort of long winded winding diatribe to suggest that the Great American Coin Hunt was definitely intended to pique collector interest and. I think to address, and again, you know, maybe this is, this is, I don't think really speculative, but I think there was some intention on the Mint's part to try to sort of participate in that, to peak public interest with the W quarters, and they were publicized, but ultimately, you know, I don't know, I don't think that these W, special W quarters had any impact 
beyond really the collector sense. community, or they certainly didn't have, they didn't kind of enter the public consciousness in the way that the original stakeholders and to a lesser, and to a probably different extent, the America the Beautiful quarters did. So, you know, I thought that was, an, and then at the very end, I feel like, you know, this is another theme that we see a lot in these letters, you know, this insider trading uh, pseudo allegation. I mean, the the writer of the letter does not cite any reporting or any any sources to suggest that he had any sense of whether or not the kind of thing was actually happening, any sort of malfeasance on the part of banks distributing these coins. But there is a sense, you know, among, you know, collectors of mint products often kind of raise that issue as well, you know, the, the sense that, you know, dealers, you know, coin dealers are getting a sweetheart deal or, you know, someone on the, has the inside track on things. That's a sentiment that we kind of see fairly often and and sometimes it is not unfounded. So that was, um, that was the first letter. So the second letter that I looked at uh, is entitled Make It a Metal Instead. And it reads, regarding the Mayflower 400th anniversary gold coin, maybe the mint could make it a gold medallion without any face value instead of a coin. As a numismatist, I always welcome additional choices. I'd like to see additional but less pricey options, say a silver and clad version. Gone are the good old days, good old days in scare quotes, when a person could order a mint set and a proof set and have an example of every coin produced for that year. And it was also um, submitted... Um, via Discus, which is an online thing, by Dave Sparks. I picked this one out for somewhat simpler reasons. Um, the first is that, you know, many letter writers lament how many different commemorative programs um, there are. Obviously, there are two a year, but there are a number of coins within those programs. And people also lament, you know, um, silver and gold eagles, um, you know, American silver and American gold eagles with different finishes and a wide range of different products that the mint offers, which makes it more expensive and you also have to compete against for the limited um for the pieces with the limited mintage you have to compete against a lot of other people to even get your example from the mint website or go and spend more money on the secondary market so it's a pretty the number of products that the mint offers and that sort of and the increase in recent years of the number of products is definitely something that our readers regularly comment on so i thought that i this letter you know was just another example of that sentiment being expressed. Then on top of that, we actually were lucky enough to interview the person responsible for the design of those coins, uh, Chris Costello, um, which was, that was a really fun interview. And I remember doing that. And so, you know, that kind of jogged my sort of podcast memory. So what Chris is saying is y'all got lots of homework this week. (laughs) If you're you're coming late to the podcast, glad you're here. But you you messed some stuff early on. But uh, <laughs> I mean, hey, if, if you all want to go back and check it out, uh, please do. If not, hey, you're here at a good time. Any time to join the podcast is a good time. Keep on listening every week and subscribe. Well, that's like the old aphorism or maxim, you know, when's the best time to plant a tree? Ten years ago, the second best time today. So, uh, you know, if, you're, if you weren't here at the beginning fine. If you're, you're here now, that's what counts. So, And you're hopefully going to be here in just a few minutes when we have our interview with Thomas Walker, author of Early Date U.S. Large Cent Rapid Attribution Guide. There are two volumes out. Both uh, Chris and I own both of the volumes. Um, you know, Thomas is a very knowledgeable that, that comes through when you hear him talk about this, and the books are very helpful. Uh, you're, you know, you're going to want to stay tuned and hear that. But before we do that, Chris, I think I need to ask a trivia question. And before I ask a trivia question, I get an answer from a trivia question from the week before. Now you were not here last week. It was Larry's turn, I believe. Right. I know. So why is, why isn't he here? He should be answering this, Uh, but I'm happy. I'm happy to answer in Larry's stead. This is not how we do things. Uh, somebody, I know. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> uh, a, a, a regular listener um, gently chided me for that at the Central States show. Hi, Brandon. Um, you know, it, it, he's like, y'all got a week to look this up and you don't know the answer. And I'm like, well, I want the presentation to be as if I were answering it this second. And so, yeah. no, I don't. I tr- generally try to don't. I don't go out there and cheat, and you know. Yeah, par- par- part of the fun of it is seeing if we can remember it off the top of our head, so to speak, and not yes. research it. And yes. I'd say this as well. I do understand the people who say, "Oh, you have a week to look it up," you know, et cetera. I do understand that, and 
I've had interesting discussions with people about the merits of, you know, answering the question incorrectly or conceding to not knowing something. And I, I, I can see arguments on both sides of that. But I, on a couple of occasions, we've had a couple of listeners write in. And by the way, we love getting emails from you all. So if you all have questions, comments, ideas, etc., um, feel free to shoot us an email. We do love to hear from folks. Um, but we've heard from more than more than one person, at least a few people over the years that we've been doing this, that... You know, if you or I or Larry, you know, don't know the answer to something or flub the question or get it half right or whatever, a lot of people find that kind of, you know, a lot of people appreciate that because, you know, if they didn't know, then it's like, well, you know what? There are people at all different stages of their numismatic journey who do or do not know things. And there's some, and I think especially, you know, I think we try to put ourselves into the shoes of the audience as much as possible. And so if we can make the audience feel more seen or more recognized, or, you know, if that's helpful to people in whatever way, you know, I certainly don't mind. Um, I certainly don't mind playing the fool, so to speak. Um, although Jeff, you never do. You're, you're always very on top of this. It's usually, it's usually. Oh no. I mean, you know, there's a reason I have a giant numismatic library. It's because I don't know crap. (laughs) I mean, you know, but I have the book that will tell me the answer, you know, and I, you know, I mean, I, I have a, a couple friends in the hobby who will send me questions. And, it, you know, some of the times it's like, all I got to do is go to Google and type in, you know, it's knowing what to type, knowing where to look. It's not knowing things necessarily. So, uh, you know, the good news is you, the longer you do this, the more it comes to you and you have that. I mean, Chris, you and I, you've, you've identified this, that there's a sort of subconscious A, B, you know, if I, I don't know how you what you term this, but like, you know, all these questions that your mind goes through almost subconsciously and almost instantly, the longer you're in this, um, you know, it takes a while. I mean, like I was at a shop the other day and I I pulled something aside and this is a curious quirk. I don't actually have cell phone coverage there at the shop. I don't know if it's all the the metal you know, security stuff in the shop. I don't know what the deal was. So I couldn't look it up. So I pulled it aside and said, I'm going to look this up and I'll, I'll get it tomorrow maybe. And cause I think it's good. And you know, my gut was informed by 20 years of experience, but I still, there's still a lot. I don't know. So, Hey, you know, it's, it's, it's all good. We're all moving toward more education, more knowledge. And as long as you're moving in that direction, it doesn't matter how fast you're going. So the question... Well, absolutely. And, and to your point, you know, the, the, an example I often cite, at some point, I, you know, it might be interesting to do an article kind of dissecting some of this terminology, but even look at like the insert of a, on a third-party grading slab for say a 1909 SVDB Lincoln Cent. You know, people, a lot of people in the hobby, and even people outside of the hobby, um, know about the 1909 SVDB Lincoln Cent. You know, they, they've heard of it. It is a commonly referenced key date, I guess, is is a way to think about it. And But when you think about it, what's on? if you look at the slab or if you look at an auction listing, it's like 1909S, 1C for one cent, 1909S, VDB, 1C, MS65, R, you know, plus RB or something. Like to us, you know, to someone who knows about the grading terminology for Lincoln Cents and, and copper coins in general, specifically looking at the RB, then, you know, they intuitively know what that means because they've seen a number of them, they're familiar with it. But if you presented that series, that sequence of letters to a layperson, they wouldn't have any idea what you're talking about. It's pure gibberish. And that same idea applies to any number of things, you know, whether it's attributing varieties. We're talking to Thomas Walker about attributing varieties. You know, we're talking to, you know, we talk to people about how to look for, you know, error coinage and how to identify different errors. One thing that consistently impresses me, and I always feel very foolish reading it, um, is Mike Diamond's column. Um, you know, his collector's clearinghouse column at the, you know, the, in the weekly editions, because his metallurgical knowledge is absolutely unbelievable to me. We've had him on the podcast before and we had, we had a great conversation with him and I, I talked to him for readers ask questions regularly. Um, and he's, he's just a, a font, a fountain of knowledge. Um, but it's amazing to me, you know, just the degree of technical sophistication behind a lot of these errors and the degree of technical detail and sort of metallurgical and, and engineering knowledge that you need to have to really identify these things. And, you know, and there are, are collecting clubs and societies dedicated to error coinage and so on. But being able to identify these things requires integrating an enormous amount of knowledge and experienced people, and this is probably true of people in any field, but experienced people can kind of integrate that information almost seamlessly and they process it much more quickly whereas someone who doesn't have that experience might not be able to. And so, you know, one thing that I think you and I try to do, and I hope 
our listeners consider us successful in this regard, is we try to kind of disambiguate that. We try to dissect, okay, you want to attribute an early date U.S. large scent variety. Okay, what is that and how do you do it? But, you know, try to get people to explain how they do it in a way where the sort of step-by-step subconscious process becomes conscious and is articulated. So that's something that we try to do. And obviously, you know, some interviews are, are more successful than others in that regard. And obviously, you know, it can be it can be a little bit difficult to drill down, especially with time constraints. But nonetheless, you know, it's I think it's an important thing to do. And in print, you know, one of the things I do and, and enjoy doing is, OK, I'm writing about a world coin or an ancient coin. And if it's, you know, in an auction, particularly the auction firm, in many cases, will list its size and weight. And so I go, OK, what is that nearest to in a U.S. coin context? Because you know, if if this gold aureus is similar in size to uh, a Jefferson nickel, but it's twice as heavy, well, that helps you understand its weightiness. It's it's you know, it's just what it would feel like in hand, so to speak. And um, you know, for me too. I mean, it helps me. So I figure, you know. If it helps me, then maybe it helps somebody on the other end. So all of this is uh, a lot of time to say uh, it's time for you to answer some questions from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we we kind of lost a thread on that one, huh? Um, so last episode, I asked Larry a, a couple questions related to Central States Numismatic Society, and I wanted to know what was the anniversary number of the convention now. Uh, this was easily determined for anyone who was at the show because the, the number was right there on the show program. This was a two-parter, so that was the first part. Then the second part of the question was, how many states comprise the Central States Numismatic Society region? You you may know both. You may know at least one. Um, I would be surprised if you don't get at least one right but you know there again this is sort of numismatic but not really i mean it's not like who designed this coin or what's on this coin or whatever so so do you have any idea of either of those i think i have an idea of both so the central states numismatic society was founded in 1939 i remember that just i don't know why just sticks in my mind for some reason which would make this year's convention the 83rd excellent excellent and deduction and your second question uh, it is 13 states comprise the Central States Numismatic Society. And how did you remember that? Just because there were 13 colonies and that's in the east? And so for so for CSNS, I sometimes, last couple of weeks, I've written very brief little news pieces about different things relating to the convention and, and things like that. And they have this cool logo um, yes. that shows all of the states. And so I remember when I first, I went to the CSNS convention in 2019 I was my first CSNS convention ever. Actually, I'd never been to one. I'd been to the ANA national show, but I'd never been to CSNS. Um, and I, you know, I wanted to learn a little bit about the organization before I went. So, which is part of the reason the 1939 date sticks in my mind. Um, and then I looked at the logo, and I thought the logo was cool. And and I also got a real kick in the fact, you know, living in Western Ohio at that time, I found myself on the sort of eastern edge of the states represented. And so I just thought it was kind of fun. And so I just counted up the number of states because it's a big swath of territory. Like those are not, you know, I live in New England, right? Like we have Rhode Island and Vermont and Connecticut and stuff like yeah. pretty small states around here. These are, it's a hefty swath of territory. Um, so I thought it was kind of fun and I thought the logo was was interesting. So I counted the number of states and it just kind of stuck in my mind. So yep. uh, yeah, 13 states in CSNS. It was established in 1939, which makes its 2022 convention. It's 83rd. So Boom. Yeah, you got both a, right. You got both boom. right. So now in that similar vein, asking about uh, the relate related to the guest or the subject of discussion, we're talking about large sense. So this is a real simple one. How large is a large scent? What makes it large? What's the size? Do you know? So that'll be, uh, I'm certain we don't get into that with Thomas Walker in the interview, but we do get a lot of other stuff. So uh, check it out uh, right now and, um, and think about that while you're listening. The Coin World Podcast is fortunate today to be speaking with Thomas Walker, the author of Early Date U.S. Large Scent Rapid Attribution Guide. So far, two volumes. 
Thomas is a man of many interest, and we'll get into that. Chris and I are delighted to own Volumes 1 and 2 of this guidebook. Thank you so much for being here today. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here as well. Volume 1 covers 1793 to 1797. Volume 2, 1798 to 1814. And these were published, I guess, um, in 2021. What's the genesis of this project and, and where will it take you? I believe uh, there's still a book or two to come, yes? I originally started on this project because in uh, mid-2020, or early 2020, I was going through large cents in my eBay feed. I was trying to attribute every single one of them, and at five to ten minutes per attribution, it was becoming very tedious and took way too much of my time. So I started creating a method so that I, I could attrib- attribute them in a minute, you know, 30 seconds, even, maybe even less. And I was... As I was making this, I realized that I could uh, add pictures to make it even easier, and it just devolved into a full-blown book as soon as I realized that I had a product here that not only have I been wanting forever, there's a lot of people in the large scent community and out of the large scent community who have been wanting an easy-to-access large scent attribution book. To my knowledge, not a single one has been published to address those those needs. For the benefit of our listeners who don't yet have a copy of either edition, how do these guides work? And um, you know, certainly you reference other works on large sense. Uh, what differentiates yours? So my books are guides. They're Ideally, not meant to be standalone references, but they could be used that way, which is why I reference all the other standard works, which go into much more detail on each and every die pair. The way my books work is you start with uh, overarching diagnostics, such as the, the letters, the distance of the letters from the hairline of liberty on 1794 large sense, or the hairstyle and letter style on 1798 large sense and then it narrows the possible varieties down by excluding what it can't be rather than uh, you're trying to narrow down what it can be so it's a uh, what we call in the engineering world an isolation manual so that that quickly and efficiently narrows you down to the correct variety based on the major diagnostics seen on the coin which are and I try to choose them so that they would be visible in low grade. And there's also a couple other chapter, a couple other sections in each chapter, where you can look up the die states. And die state sections use a large and high definition pictures from the PCGS, NGC Heritage, Goldberg, the ANS collection. And uh, there's no other guide that has clear, close-up pictures of each and every major die state, which is what sets this guide above and beyond anything else in the market. And I think the die state information alone is worth uh, the price of the book. There's also a rapid uh, diagnostic identification section in most of the chapters, which uh, help with memorizing which major plainly visible diagnostics and plainly differentiable diagnostics are uh, used to identify a certain dye and hopefully a certain dye pair. And uh, of course I have uh, the pictures of the full coins at the end of each chapter so if you have any questions or want to verify other diagnostics you can go there and see your coin lines up with the full coin plate. I love and and you know some of that that you've just spelled out there is in the I guess the first chapter of each book and I love that for all the technicality that you bring to this you know you're a flight test engineer you have that engineer's mind you you talk about a, a way to assess things to exclude 
possibilities. The first chapter is, for the love of all that is holy, please read this chapter first, aka how to use this guide and get the most out of it. And, you know, for somebody who, you know, dye varieties and all that to me and to I think to many people can be very... <laughs> dry subjects or very, you know, very technical subjects, uh, you, you definitely, uh, bring a little bit of a, a sense of humor to that. And a few other things like say the, um, you know, th this is me, uh, on the, about the author page, this is me, or it was me at some point in the past, you might be reading this in the far future time changes people, you know? So I, I just have to say, I love that those little, those little nuggets of, of humor that help, uh, you know, somebody who uses the book to be able to enjoy it at a different level. One of the things I want to clarify, though, there's two books out now. You know, the Large Scent series goes to 1857. Will you be covering 1815 to 1857? And uh, if so, what are your plans for how to approach that area, that timeline in a book or, or multiple books? I have uh, thought about doing the middle and late dates since middle dates being 1816 to 1839 and late dates being 1847. Isolation methods for uh, rapid attribution for the late dates, especially in grades VF and lower. So I've been uh, thinking of potential methods and how to approach those methods. I haven't uh, delved into it, but it is an area that I am exploring, just not actively at the moment. I have uh, another work that I'm more passionate about that I'm wanting to pursue before going into the middle and late dates, but I would assume that the middle dates would be largely the same as what I already have published, and the late dates would be, um, it would focus more on the uniqueness of each die rather than uh, isolate through major diagnostics, since an isolation through major diagnostics would just not work for the late dates. Which varieties did you find were the hardest, or are the hardest in your experience to attribute, and which were the hardest to explain? Your guide, as you said, it's it's an isolation method, which a concept which I find really interesting as applied to attributing dye varieties. Which ones do you find that those um, that those um, attribution methods, that isolation method, which are the hardest to apply that method to? And like I said earlier, which varieties do you find are the most difficult to attribute, or the most difficult for? either novices or uh, people with a middling level of experience to attribute? Historically, the 1800s have been the hardest. And uh, I think the Sheldon book, he introduces the 1800 chapter by saying that 1800 cents are the hardest to attribute. I didn't find that to be the case, but 1800 is the first year where they started using a reverse hub that had all of the letters and the wreath. So you can't use leaf letter relationships like you could on earlier scents. So you had to find a uh, different, different uh, diagnostics such as the fraction or the letters of Liberty on the obverse or the position of the date. The, the use of hubs actually began in 1798 towards the end. And with a number of 1798 varieties in the style two hair varieties with uh, the reverse hub to reverse dies, I would say that those are the most difficult because they all the reverses look the same, including the fraction. So I had to focus on diagnostics other than the reverse and the fraction to isolate the variety. So to answer your question as a whole, the more similar the die the dies are, the more difficult it is to find diagnostics to identify a variety and exclude others. I have to be very careful to not pick a diagnostic to exclude that could also be very easily confused with a diagnostic on a different variety. Awesome. Uh, having little to no experience with large sense before picking up the books, I can say that it's it's very 
easy to use and it, and it makes sense, the whole methodology. I do want to ask, these books seem to represent a major step in your numismatic journey, which I want to discuss. I, I love the fact that you and Chris have something in common, and that's uh, that you both got your start with state quarters. Can you talk about your beginnings as a young numismatist and how you got to now? Because uh, you know, you have very diverse interest, and we can talk about that a little bit after uh, after you uh, get some insight into your earlier collecting uh, path. As you said, I first started with uh, state quarters in uh, first grade. My uh, family would give me two quarters as ice cream money every day. And uh, I would look at the quarters and notice that on some of them, Washington had a spaghetti hair, and if I looked at the back of those, the reverse, I'd notice it had a design that wasn't an eagle, so I started saving those. I asked my friends at the time what those were about, and they said they would be worth millions one day, so I asked my dad, like, what are these? And he started explaining the Statehood Quarter program, and the more curious I got, he started, he pulled out his own collection and uh, I kept on asking to see it until he got me some of my own folders and uh, some bags of coins to look through. And I started filling up the folders. And uh, that pretty much uh, cemented my passion for coins, and which has been basically unbroken from first grade until now. I was uh, basically just uh, a hole-filling collector until I got to college. when I started realizing I could uh, buy and sell from and make a profit because having extra money in college is always a good thing. And I realized that there was a really big learning curve that was required in order to be successful at buying and selling coins. So that's when I started my accelerated accrual of knowledge and the experience required for grading. And then I got into dye varieties. My uh, first experience with uh, large scent varieties is when I bought a small lot of early large scents that were unattributed at a coin club and bought them for five bucks each because they were all damaged. And I started attributing them and I realized that one of them was a really rare variety. So I took it to Chris McCauley and he confirmed my attribution and sold it at auction. And the proceeds of that actually helped fund the instrument that's in the picture you guys have. That's awesome. Yeah, I like your phrase, uh, accelerated accrual of knowledge. My last uh, four years or so working at CoinWorld has definitely, I've definitely uh, gone through my own accelerated uh, accrual of knowledge as well. So uh, that, that definitely resonates. And uh, hearing that you started with the stakeholders again, like Jeff said, that was, uh, that was my sort of entry into the hobby as well. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that, you know, you're, your accelerated accrual of knowledge has occurred over the last number of years. Did you participate in a lot of young numismatist events or, you know, did you go through a lot of YN programs and, you know, who do you feel are some of your sort of mentors in the hobby who have really helped you along? And do you think that the hobby does enough for YNs? My coin club had a uh, YN program once every month. And uh, one of the key members of that coin club was Bill Fieba. And he acted as my mentor until I had left for college. We still keep in touch. He still acts as my mentor. I ask him questions if I have something I don't know the answer to and I can't find the answer online or in any of the references I have. Or if I need to bounce off uh, an opinion. As for uh, other YN programs, I didn't really participate in much at coin shows and the like because my dad was always too busy to go to the coin shows. Occasionally go to one, and I participate in the YM program. YM programs offered there. I always had fun, and uh, always came away with uh, free coins and some new knowledge that I didn't have previously. As for the question about doing enough for YNs, I would say we probably do as much as we can. What are some other sort of seminal events in that sort of what your interest in numismatics and critically sustained that interest? I would definitely say the coin club. That's something I look forward to every two weeks. 
I was always excited a few days out. I had stuff I wanted to sell. I had uh, money set aside for something I wanted to buy. You credit Bill Fever, who is, of course, a, um, a big name in the hobby and a well-known expert. But now people come to you uh, for your expertise and very diverse interest, I might add. So, I mean, you're, you're looking at large sense. You have an interest in uh, counterfeits, particularly Chinese-made counterfeits, and then uh, Chinese cash coins. Uh, how did you get into those very diverse areas? And uh, you've you've become, again, somebody who people come to for expertise uh, in, in those fields. And um, from what I've seen, you seem very keen to help people as so many people have helped you, uh, you know, in the book you credit uh, half a dozen to a dozen folks, um, you certainly seem to be returning the favor with your uh, sharing of knowledge. Uh, my diverse interests come from what I call the shotgun approach to collecting. Try a little bit of everything, see what sticks. So... I tried a little bit with error coins. That didn't stick. I went to China and started with uh, Chinese cash coins, and that stuck very fast. I started with uh, attributing large cents, and I decided that was very fun as a technical challenge. So I started working my way towards other variety attribution, and I just loved the technical challenge. So that stuck. I tried uh, doing various type collecting and type dealing. I found I didn't like the collecting part as there's a whole bunch of different types that I really don't care about, such as half dimes. But with uh, type dealing, I have to have a broad knowledge of how to grade and how to authenticate each and every coin type. As for the counterfeits, I needed to practice some, so I ordered a whole bunch of counterfeits from a well-known Chinese wholesaler and started observing them for characteristics that were not consistent with uh, genuine pieces. I started uh, accruing those diagnostics to generalize for all Chinese counterfeits. Then immediately after that, I took the summer seminar for counterfeit detection at the ANA, and that helped me immensely, both with the Chinese counterfeits and the older counterfeits that are not as prevalent in the market, but still there. And then um, I tried my hand with uh, ancient coins. Didn't really stick, so I offloaded most of that collection. But the stuff that I've learned from doing ancients is still with me. So doing the attributions, I found a method that works best for me. And I help others because I have the knowledge and I don't want it to go to waste. Because uh, if you use it, you lose it. I like uh, sharing the knowledge because I'm... I guess I'm a teacher at heart. I like um, helping people the way I, I've been helped in the in the past. And if they're willing to listen or keep an open mind that someone who's 20 years younger than them might have something that they don't know yet, then I'm happy to freely give them any advice I can give them that they don't already have. So aside from picking up copies of uh, the two volumes of your book, what else could a novice large scent collector who wants to learn how to attribute to develop the kind of eye that you have? And other people have obviously helped you in developing your eye and you're keen to pay that knowledge forward. For someone who doesn't necessarily have the benefit of being very plugged into you know, large scent specialist circles, how would you recommend to learn a little bit about attributing? Obviously, getting your book is a start, but are, what are some other sort of habits of mind or habits of collecting that can help people hone that eye. Look at as many coins as possible. The, the more coins you see, the more you start seeing the smaller differences. And when you start seeing the smaller differences, you start noticing them, you start memorizing them, you start asking yourself, what, why is that difference there? Or why is that difference significant? Or is that difference significant? And you start doing research into the, the dye varieties and you're looking for that difference, whether it's a cut or die crack or the numbers in a widely different place or the, the leaf position is 
much different from all the others that you have seen. So it's uh, a case of experience with many, many different coins and uh, just observing them rather than just uh, looking at them. Sherlock always liked to say, you see but do not observe. So if you just look at it and go, oh, that's a nice coin, you're not going to learn anything about or glean any anything from that experience. But if you look at it and go, that number is more further left than on this one, why is that? Then uh, you start noticing which differences are significant and where you should look to spot the differences. You know, you have these diverse interests, and you've obviously, um, you know, you've you've done some great work with large sense. Are you looking at maybe doing something in the publishing realm, or you know, uh, down that path with the other two areas? Uh, you know, in addition to yes, I know you've you've done presentations, say for on on the counterfeit stuff. Is are you going to go in that direction? Is that you you mentioned earlier uh, another project that's sort of taken your interest at the moment? Maybe maybe that relates to one of your other uh, areas of interest. I've thought about it, and I just haven't um, started. I haven't committed to a particular project yet, or committed to drafting and publishing a work in terms of counterfeit detection or Chinese coins or ancient coins, mainly because there's so many great references out there from people who are much more experienced than I am. I don't want to step on their toes or publish something that's too similar to what's already been published. But uh, the thing that I'm working on right now is uh, something I know everyone wants, but no one's really done it yet. So I'm trying to keep it confidential and under wraps. Hey, that's uh, that's totally fair. Uh, you know, we don't you don't always tip your hand. <laughs> you don't want to tip your hand. But I think you know you said a phrase earlier: a teacher at heart. And I think uh, with that mindset and with your spirit of sharing knowledge and all that, we should be staying tuned and and looking forward to whatever comes down the pike from you in the months and years to come. And when something does develop in that way, we definitely want to be there to uh, share that with uh, our listeners, our readers, uh, the audience, and uh, thank you for your contribution to the hobby. So, um, Please, please keep that in mind. And and with that, I will say thank you again for taking some time today to explore your journey and to uh, talk about these very important works, the early date U.S. Large Scent Rapid Attribution Guides, Volumes 1 and 2. Where can people get them? Uh, I know you publish through Amazon. I'm assuming that's a platform or a place where they can be ordered. Is there any other? Uh, what's the best method for folks to uh, get in touch with you? Amazon is definitely the best place to order physical copies of the book. I thought about doing a e-reader version, but can't get the format to work currently don't have any on hand to sell so that's not a very consistent so reaching out to me directly is not a very consistent way to uh, order the guides but um, I can be contacted directly for questions or recommendations at uh, thomaswnumismatics at gmail.com awesome thomaswnumismatics at gmail.com that's the best way to get in touch with me directly Fantastic. Thanks again, and we do appreciate this. You're welcome. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Thomas Walker. We're talking to him about his um, early date U.S. Large Scent Rapid Attribution Guide, um, both volumes of which reside in Jeff's Numismatic Library as well as mine. Uh, we had a great time talking to him. We hope that you gleaned some great information out of that interview, some tips to inform your own collecting journey, and just a better sense as to how such an attribution guide would be uh, written and published and, the, and some of the background information that he provided. So um, this is the part of the show where we implore you uh, to continue listening every week and uh, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Um, it really is the best way to help the show. Well, the best way to help the show would be to deliver bags of small unmarked bills non-sequentially to us at 
the local coin show. Okay, but... short, short of asking you, our <laughs> listeners, to provide humanitarian relief to Jeff and I, because apparently we both need it. Um, short, short of doing that, we don't, we don't Kidding. expect a, bur- we, we don't expect a Berlin airlift to Massachusetts and Missouri, though that would be nice. <laughs> and hey, Jeff- hey, we, we've ter- heard the phrase helicopter money. <laughs> <laughs> anyway well anyway so short 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 of short of delivering non-sequential bills in manila envelopes ideally in a parking garage but we would accept them in other venues you know short of doing that um you know listening every week subscribing and you know reach out to us we love to hear from you all we love to hear ideas for the show things that you all find valuable your own collecting stories um everyone's style we'll, we'll talk about messages that we get on the podcast so if you yes. really want to if you want to hear us utter your utter your name or question feel free to reach out and we would also be remiss to not thank uh, Cornwall Plus, who is our main sponsor for the show. You know, people should go and check out the Cornwall Plus app and check out that service. Um, and we appreciate their support for the show. Absolutely. I'm glad I amused myself, if nothing else. So, uh, you know, until next week, as always, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Coin World Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about Coin World Plus at coinworldplus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.